Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. In this lecture, Professor Joseph Nye will explore trends in global politics and whether they are simply the result of large impersonal structural forces or whether human agency matters. Thank you very much. It's a great pleasure to be here in Bath, in one of the world's truly lovely cities, and to have a chance to address you this evening. Uh, I should also thank you for the generous introduction, but warn you that, uh, as my children would say when they were growing up, and somebody would call the house and ask, is Dr. Nye there? They would always say, yes, but he's not the useful kind. So, <laughs> a warning of uh, things to come. The uh, plan I'd like to have for this evening is to divide the time in half that we have together. Uh, professors can speak for hours on end. Indeed, one of the definitions of a professor is somebody who thinks that a sound bite is 60 minutes. But uh, in fact, I'm going to try to speak for half of the time we have together so that the other half can be in questions and answers. So think of your questions, objections, and alternatives as I go along, because it's actually much more interesting to have a live interaction than just to listen to something which you could otherwise see on a videotape at some point. With that, let me tell you a bit about uh, what I have on my mind and that's in this new book that uh, I've got coming out uh, uh, a week or so. And I'm very intrigued by the question of do leaders matter? And if so, what kind of leaders? And I looked at this question of the primacy of the United States in world politics, which basically occurs in the 20th century, where the United States starts the century as a relatively weak power and ends the century as the world's only superpower. And I asked myself, does it matter who was president or would it all have happened the same anyway? And if you look at what happened in the 20th century, it really is quite extraordinary. You have one of the rules of international politics is that there is a balance of power. When one country becomes too strong, other countries will balance its power to protect their independence. And yet you wound up by the end of the 20th century with the United States as the only country able to project military power globally. Uh, it represented more than a quarter of the world's product, what was made, and it had the world's leading soft power resources in terms of universities, entertainment industries, and so forth. Um, so American primacy went from not zero, but pretty low on the scale, to the top of the scale in a hundred years. Now, Americans tend to like this, and during the 2012 presidential campaign, both the presidential candidates, Obama and Romney, 
uh, promised that they would maintain American privacy. But I guess one of the questions, is it within the power of a president to promise such a thing? Because if the results are all structural and it doesn't matter, then the leader may not be able to do anything about it. You either rise or fall because of other forces, not because of what the leader does. In fact, that question, do leaders matter, how much of it it depends upon human actions, is a very, very old question. And uh, nobody is going to solve it, including my talk tonight. But it is interesting that uh, if you go back to, to uh, let's say, to the uh, Tolstoy's War and Peace is one extreme in which basically people don't matter. Human agency is beside the point. There are these larger forces of history which sweep events along. Uh, and on the other, uh, you have people who say, well, uh, great leaders are great sources of history, that the, uh, that the source of history is indeed uh, individuals and leaders. I suspect that Marx got it somewhat right when he said that man makes history, but not own, under conditions of his own choosing. So the question of what extent leaders matter will be with us for some time. Indeed, Henry Kissinger uh, is alleged to have said by Walter Isaacson, his biographer, uh, before he went to Washington when he was a mere professor at Harvard, uh, that it wasn't leaders that mattered. It was these large structural forces of history. But according to Isaacson, after he got to Washington, he changed his mind and decided that leaders mattered very much, which I suppose says that the answer to our question, uh, where you stand, depends on where you sit. Now, when you ask that question of do leaders matter, you have an indeterminate answer, and I'll tell you how I went about trying to test it uh, in the course of the century by looking at the American experience. But let me raise for you a second question before I get into that, and that's what kind of leaders matter? Leadership experts like to extol the virtues of transformational leaders, those who set out bold objectives and take risks and change the world. Um, and they tend to downplay or denigrate the role of transactional leaders, those who manage things and make the trains run on time. I was intrigued in reading the various accounts about the leadership of Margaret Thatcher, which filled the British press and the world press, really, in the last month, of how many people extolled her as a transformational leader. Uh, some agreed, some disagreed, but clearly she was a leader of a different type who changed things, who made uh, various changes. That, uh, that would be, I suppose, contrasted with her successor, John Major, who would be an example of a transactional leader who kept things going, uh, did some things well, but uh, didn't lead to great changes. 
And when we look at, uh, at American presidents, uh, we have the same question. I mean, some people will say there are great transformational leaders among the presidents, and there are others who are transactional, but the general tendency is to prefer the transformational. These are the, are the great figures. Now, what I did to try to test this was to look at the leaders who presided over the four key periods of expansion uh, of the American era during the last century. And there are really four phases in which the United States expands or creates this American era. One was the entry into World War I. You may remember that uh, the conventional wisdom of American foreign policy in the 19th century was not isolationism. The United States wasn't isolationist from the point of view of Mexico. After all, we stole half of their country. But uh, it was isolationist from the point of view of Europe. We wanted to stay away from the bad old ways of Europe. And George Washington famously said that we should avoid any entangling alliances. So the tradition of American foreign policy was Western Hemisphere, stay on this side of uh, the ocean, not the other side of the ocean, stay out of it. But one of the great transformations, one of the big changes in the creation of the American era was the entry into World War I. And that was quite remarkable because instead of using the Atlantic as a separator, Woodrow Wilson sent two million American troops to fight in Europe. That was a big, big change. The second big change in terms of the creation of the American era was the entry into World War II, in which Franklin Roosevelt famously became deeply involved, along with Churchill and Stalin, in defeating uh, Nazi Germany in Europe, but also in defeating Imperial Japan in Asia. And the third big change was after World War II, when Harry Truman decided not to come home. Because if you believe, if you look at Wilson and Franklin Roosevelt, uh, Wilson sends troops, but then brings them home. Roosevelt sends troops. There was a question, had he not died, would he have brought them home? Harry Truman says, no, we're going to leave them there. That's a huge violation of the American tradition. Uh, it's one thing to send all these troops over there to fight in Europe, but to leave them there for half a century, that was a big thing. So the Marshall Plan, the creation of NATO, this was another big, big change in the creation of the American era. And it's consolidated after Truman's decisions by Dwight Eisenhower, who follows him, who essentially lays the basis to make this permanent. And then the fourth phase in the creation of the American era in the 20th century really is the end of the Cold War. And it's presided over by two Republican presidents, Ronald Reagan and George H.W. Bush, sometimes known as Bush 41, 
because he was the 41st president, to distinguish him from his son, the 43rd president. And what's interesting about these key leaders who were presidents during this period is that you could make an argument that the first set during going to war, which starts with Teddy Roosevelt, but it's Woodrow Wilson, those were both transformational leaders. Franklin Roosevelt, also a transformational leader. But Harry Truman and Dwight Eisenhower, Truman was transformational. Eisenhower was largely transactional. And when you look at the fourth period of the end of the Cold War, Reagan was very much transformational, but he's succeeded by George H.W. Bush, who was really transactional. So we have in our sample some who are transformational and some who are transactional. And what I found to my surprise as I did the research on this, and I should say in terms of the process of doing the research, I not only looked at what the presidents did, I engaged in what's sometimes called counterfactual history. Counterfactual history, you stay as close to what happened as you can, but you change one thing, usually proximate in time, so you can see what might have been different if that one thing hadn't been changed. The thing that I changed was who was president. So I took the next most likely person to be president and imagined if they were in the office instead of the person who made the key decisions. So you can play with this through the century. If William McKinley, who was the American president at the turn of the century, from 19th to 20th century, was assassinated. Because he was assassinated, Teddy Roosevelt became president. Teddy Roosevelt, having promised not to run for a third term, in 1912 decided to run for a third term, and in doing so split the Republican vote, which is the only reason that Woodrow Wilson became president. Without Teddy Roosevelt running for a third term, Wilson would not have been president. Franklin Roosevelt in 1944 decides to change his vice president. His vice president at the time was a man named Henry Wallace who had, uh, some would say, naive or extremely friendly views of the Soviet Union. Uh, Franklin Roosevelt decides to change Wallace and replace him with Harry Truman, who, of course, presided over the beginning of the Cold War. So you can go through, and that you can get later, where Ronald Reagan nearly was assassinated in the first uh, term, uh, first few months of his office. And you can go through history, then you can say, what's the next, what's the next most likely person to be president? How would things have been different? So this is the method that I used to try to test the effect of uh, of leaders on this period of creation, or these four periods of creation of the American era. And what I found to my surprise is that while transformational presidents like Woodrow Wilson and Ronald Reagan changed how Americans saw the world, it was transactional presidents like Eisenhower and George H.W. Bush, Bush 41, who were sometimes more effective and more ethical. And I don't think I would have come up 
with this unconventional conclusion before I undertook the research on this book on presidential leadership and the creation of the American era. Now, if that's correct, and I'll go into a little bit more about why I think it is correct, it has some implications for what presidents might be able to do and think about today. It suggests that President Obama and his successors should beware of thinking that transformational proclamations are the key to successful adaptation to the rapidly changing politics of a global information age. American power and leadership, I think, will remain crucial for stability and prosperity, but honing their contextual intelligence, remembering the Hippocratic Oath, above all, do no harm, may be more important than giving fancy speeches or trying to change the world. In that sense, the transactional presidents may give better lessons to leaders today than transformational presidents. That may be wrong, but it's not the conventional wisdom. So what can I do to defend it? Now, transformation, by its definition, involves placing large bets, such as George W. Bush, Bush 43, placed on the invasion of Iraq. But big bets often involve big risks, and they raise important questions about what risks and costs foreign policy leaders should impose upon their followers. Such bets should at least meet the criterion, which is part of a just war theory, of having a reasonable prospect of success. But even that's hard to judge. For example, think back in history. Who was one of the great strategists of the 19th century? Most people would argue Otto von Bismarck, the man who unified Germany under Prussian leadership. So Bismarck, in 1870, made a very large bet that manufacturing a war with France, the Franco-Prussian War, would allow him to unify a divided Germany under the leadership of Prussia. That bet paid off. He also made another bet, this great strategist of the century. He bet that he could take the provinces of Alsace and Lorraine from France without doing great harm. In fact, that bet was a disaster. It led, in French thinking, to the view that, above all else, we will recover Alsace and Lorraine. So Bismarck, who was renowned as a transformational leader and strategist, uh, made one bet right and one bet wrong. Similarly, Woodrow Wilson, who I identified earlier as a major transformational leader in this change of American foreign policy and the creation of the American era, made a costly and mistaken bet on the Versailles Treaty. You remember that when Woodrow Wilson was planning to go to war in World War I, he was not doing something different from his predecessor, Teddy Roosevelt. Teddy Roosevelt also 
thought we should go to war. Roosevelt's reason to go to war was he felt it was important to back up Britain and to prevent the dominance of Europe by Germany. A very realpolitik, realistic view that America's interest in the longer run were going to be more aligned with Britain than with Germany. And Roosevelt, who was Teddy Roosevelt, who was then out of office, bet essentially that we should go to war, but if he had gone to war, he would have used that type of reasoning. Wilson was like Roosevelt in some ways, but different in others. He, he and Roosevelt were both transformational leaders. They both had Ivy League backgrounds. Roosevelt was Harvard, Wilson was Princeton. Both of them won Nobel Prizes when in office for what they'd done. Both of them wrote books. Very rare for presidents to write books that are not campaign books. Both of them wrote serious books. And they were similar in those ways, but they were different in a very, uh, very important way. Roosevelt was a realist, and Wilson was very much an idealist. And incidentally, the two men detested each other. But when Wilson had to make this decision, whether to enter World War I or not, which was based on the fact that the Germans said, re-inaugurated unrestricted submarine warfare. Wilson could have said, I'm doing this for the larger realistic interest, such as Teddy Roosevelt said, but, or he could have simply proclaimed neutrality, said, I'm gonna sit it out, which has been his policy in the first three years of the war. But instead he said, you know, if we're going to go into this war, we're going to transform the world. We're going to make the world safe for democracy. We're going to get away from the old evil ways of the balance of power in which great powers treat nations as cheeses to be divided up for their convenience. We're going to transform the world into a system of collective security in which there will not be a balance of one state against another but an organization which will unite all peace-loving states against any state which turns out to be an aggressor. This theory of collective security, which was embedded in the Versailles Treaty at the end of World War I, was a radically different approach to how you did international politics and a radically different approach from what Teddy Roosevelt would have done as a leader in terms of telling the American people why it was worth sending two million people to go and fight in Europe. Now, Wilson, in doing so, created a noble vision, but the vision exceeded his capacity to implement it. And one of the ironies of history is that because his vision failed, it set back the American creation of the American era and the creation of this new world that he wanted and produced the isolationism of the 1930s. When Wilson proclaimed this grand, beautiful new world, he had the American public 
marching behind him. He got the Americans to support his going into World War I. But when the treaty failed to pass the Senate, and there was a feeling that the Americans had made a mistake to get involved in fighting in Europe, it led to a virulent isolationism in the 1930s that prevented Franklin Roosevelt from acting as quickly as he would like to try to deal with the threat that was posed by Hitler. One of the ironies of history is that if, when Wilson saw trouble with his treaty in the Senate, uh, he might have got it passed by making compromises. But instead, he said, I will appeal to the American people. And he went on a train trip throughout the American West. This is in the days before airplanes. And you got on the train, and the train stopped at a town, and you stood on the back of the train, and you gave a speech, and the train went on to the next town. That was called whistle-stopping. And uh, Wilson went on a whistle-stopping campaign through the western part of the United States, and he so exhausted himself that he had a stroke. And he had to come back to Washington where he was bedridden for much of the rest of his term. The irony of history is if the stroke had killed Wilson rather than debilitated him, the Americans almost certainly would have signed the Treaty of Versailles and joined the League of Nations. But Wilson, in his debilitated role, refused to allow the moderate Democrats to compromise with the moderate Republicans, and so the treaty went down to defeat, and the result was this massive reaction which led to this isolation of the 1930s. Now, if you think about the 1930s, if you look at um, the problem that Franklin Roosevelt had to face, Franklin Roosevelt comes into office in 1933 faced with a Great Depression. A quarter of the American people are out of work. Uh, what does he think of international affairs? Zero. He is focused only on what do you do at home given this terrible problem of unemployment. By 1938, however, Franklin Roosevelt begins to worry about Adolf Hitler. Ironically, Hitler and Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt, both come to office in the same year, 1933. By 38, Roosevelt decides, particularly after Munich, where Hitler has broken his promises, and after Kristallnacht, the attack on Jews and Jewish stores uh, in Germany, he decides that Hitler is a man who cannot be trusted, and sooner or later he's going to cause trouble for the United States in the Western Hemisphere as well. So he decides that we have to start preparing for a war with Hitler. The trouble that Roosevelt faces, Franklin Roosevelt, is nobody else agrees with him. He says at one point to one of his close advisors, he said, what does a leader in a democracy do when you see a problem and you tell people the problem and you look over your shoulder and nobody is following? 
So Roosevelt tries to engineer some crises that might uh, uh, get the people to see that this is a problem, but he can't do it. In fact, there's a famous episode in which he lies to the American people to try to create such an episode. There's a, a situation where an American uh, destroyer, the Greer, is chasing a German U-boat in 1940 before the war, uh, before the Americans are part of the war. And Roosevelt tells the American people that the U-boat has attacked the Greer. In fact, it was the other way around. Uh, but he hopes that some incident can educate the people. It doesn't work. And it isn't until Pearl Harbor, when the Japanese bomb Pearl Harbor, that Roosevelt is able to persuade the American people of this second great change in American policy, which is to enter World War II. Now, that shows you some of the limits of a transformational leader. For all his capacity to speak effectively, his famous fireside chats and so forth, he wasn't able to persuade the people, but a huge event like Pearl Harbor was. What Roosevelt was able to do was to prepare for when an event occurred that we'd be ready. So he basically has a draft uh, law approved. He builds up the arms budget, and he finds ways to send military equipment and other supplies to Churchill and Britain in a surreptitious way. It's called Lend-Lease, as though we were ever going to get it back. He knew he never would, didn't expect to. Or there was a wonderful thing in which uh, uh, the United States, Roosevelt, sent troops to Iceland. And why did he send troops to Iceland? Because Iceland, in his view, was part of the Western Hemisphere. So with a whole series of maneuvers, Roosevelt got prepared so that when the attack on Pearl Harbor came, he was able to take advantage of it. So that's an example of somebody who was transformational in his action, but who was not necessarily able to pull off what he wanted just by giving fancy speeches. Now, Harry Truman, as I mentioned, who was crucial in the third episode or third phase of the creation of the American era, staying in Europe, basically was a accident of history. And when he came into office, he was not a transformational leader. He was a senator from Missouri who was primarily thought of as a transactional leader. He, Roosevelt didn't confide in him at all. Truman never knew about the things that Roosevelt was doing at Yalta or preparing the atomic bomb and so forth. Rose, Truman comes into office, and his first efforts are trying to keep things steady, keep the trains running on time, don't cause trouble, don't rock the ship, implement Roosevelt's vision. As he watches the changes that Stalin is making and pressing forward, uh, basically Truman says, 
we have to do something about this. And working with a effective team of advisors, he lays the basis for a very different type of American foreign policy with the Marshall Plan and NATO. So Truman becomes transformational through on-the-job learning, not a fancy, flashy, committed internationalist who comes into office, but a man who, watching what's happening, says, I have to respond and I have to make big changes. Indeed, some of the biggest changes ever made to American foreign policy, permanent presence abroad. So he becomes transformational on the job. And even so, there's a question at the end of Truman's period whether this will remain American foreign policy. Truman is uh, not popular when he leaves, partly because of the Korean War. And it looks like the Republican Party is going to nominate Robert Taft, a senator from Ohio, who basically was an isolationist. And so many people thought maybe the Americans will, with a little delay, repeat what they did after World War I. But Eisenhower, who'd been the general in charge of American forces, the supreme commander of allied forces in World War II, decides that he will run for president to prevent Taft from running as an isolationist. He wins, and in doing so, he consolidates the forward presence of the Americans. In other words, he takes Truman's program and puts it on a solid bipartisan basis. Not a new vision of his own, simply reinforcing what was already there. And he has what's more or less a transactional presidency. Now, if you ask this question of which leaders, transformational or transactional, are more effective, it's worth comparing Woodrow Wilson with the first uh, President Bush. Because in the case of Wilson, he had a vision which was partly vindicated, but he lacked the leadership skill of how to implement it. And if you look at Bush, the first Bush, 41, he was famous for saying that he did not do the vision thing. He didn't believe in promoting grand visions or trying to change the world. And what's remarkable about Bush 41 is in contrast to his predecessor, Ronald Reagan, who gave grand speeches and energized people through his speeches, Bush 41 didn't do much of that at all. And when you look at the two leaders, Wilson, who was a great speaker, as was Reagan, and compare him with Bush 41, you realize that of the two, Bush, the transactional president, was the more successful. Wilson, the transformational president, the less successful. Now, perhaps the facetious moral of the story is that at some mythical day in the future, genetic engineers will be able to produce leaders equally endowed with both sets of skills. But comparing the two Bushes, father and son, who shared half their genes, it makes it clear that nature hasn't yet solved this problem. 
Now, this is not an argument against transformational leaders per se. In turbulent situations, a transformational leader can make a huge difference. Leaders such as Mohandas Gandhi, Nelson Mandela, Martin Luther King uh, played crucial roles in transforming uh, people's identity and aspirations. And it's not an argument against transformational leaders in American foreign policy. After all, FDR and Truman uh, both made crucial contributions to the creation of the American era. But it is an argument that when we judge leaders, we need to pay attention both to the acts of commission and the acts of omission, both things that happened and things that didn't happen or putting it in the terms of uh, Sherlock Holmes, both dogs that barked and dogs that didn't bark. For example, take Eisenhower, who was often denigrated as a do-nothing, lackadaisical president who just presided over Truman's creation. There were some crucial decisions that Eisenhower made not to do things that would otherwise have changed the world dramatically. For example, Eisenhower refused a recommendation by the Joint Chiefs of Staff to use nuclear weapons both in Korea and against China. Imagine the world today if Eisenhower had used nuclear weapons. Eisenhower's comment to his advisors when they suggested that he defend the offshore islands off China by using nuclear weapons, said, my God, we can't use these things on Asians again within 10 years. That was an extraordinary decision. And imagine that instead of a nuclear taboo, which has lasted for 70 years, nuclear weapons have become regularized as weapons to be used every 10 years. So Eisenhower made a huge decision but not one that gets a lot of publicity, not one with fancy speaking. Um, similarly, if you look at George H.W. Bush, who presided over the end of the Cold War, but didn't preach much about it, didn't say much about it, didn't have Reagan's ability to make large statements like Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. When the wall finally came down in November 1989, Bush's advisors said to him, you must exploit this for political purposes. This is a huge victory. You should be able to really make political hay out of this. And Bush's comment to his advisors is I'm not going to dance on the wall. I'm not going to gloat over this. And a month later, he met with Mikhail Gorbachev in a summit on a ship off of Malta, and they began the negotiations to develop the trust that made it possible to preside over not just the end of the Cold War, but the end of an empire without violence. And if you say, oh, it would have happened anyway, remember there were 400,000 Soviet troops fully armed 
inside Germany, and the idea that you could unify Germany without Soviet troops inside NATO as part of the Western community was widely regarded as unthinkable in 1989, including unthinkable by Margaret Thatcher, who disagreed with Bush on this. So the fact that Bush, quietly not gloating, not making Reaganite or Thatcherite speeches, was able to produce the end of the Cold War and the end of the Soviet Empire without violence is quite an extraordinary accomplishment. But again, one that's not touted. It wasn't his transformation. He didn't see a vision of this. Bush saw this as, I will manage this. This is change that's going on. I will manage the change. Had he not managed the change that was going on anyway, the world we see today would look very different than it does now. So in that sense, I think as we try to summarize this, transformational leaders are important because they make choices that most leaders would not make. But a key question is how much risk democratic followers want their leaders to take in foreign policy. And that depends very much upon the context. The big problem in foreign policy is the complexity of the context. You not only have the complexity of international systems, but you have the complexity of multiple intricacies of democratic politics or domestic politics in multiple countries. And that type of complexity gives a special relevance to the Aristotelian virtue of prudence, avoiding excess or deficiency. We live in a world of diverse cultures and know very little about social engineering or how to build nations. Where we cannot be sure how to improve the world, prudence becomes an important virtue, and hubristic visions can pose a grave danger in foreign policy as in medicine. It's important, then, to remember the Hippocratic Oath that I mentioned earlier. For these reasons, the virtues of transactional leaders with good contextual intelligence are very important. A Bush 41 without the ability to articulate a vision, but who's able to steer successfully through crises, turns out to be a better leader than a Bush 43 with a powerful vision, but little contextual intelligence. In that sense, if you look at the situation we're in today, it's worth remembering a comment made by Secretary of State George Shultz, who was Ronald Reagan's Secretary of State, when asked about what foreign policy is about. And Shultz said, foreign policy is a lot like gardening. In his words, the constant nurturing of a complex array of actors, interests, and goals. But one of Schultz's successors and Stanford colleagues, Condoleezza Rice, wanted a more transformational diplomacy. Indeed, she used those terms of wanting transformational diplomacy, which she said was not accepting the world as it is, but trying to change it. In, the comment, in one commentator's words, Rice's ambitions was not to be just a gardener. She wanted to be a landscape architect. 
Now, there's a role for both, depending on the context, but we should avoid the common mistake of automatically thinking that the transformational landscape architect is a better leader than the careful gardener. Good leadership in this century may or may not be transformational, but it will require a careful understanding of the context of change. So what will be the context of change in this century? I've tried to explain this in a prior book that I wrote called The Future of Power, in which I argue that there are two great power shifts going on, one largely from west to east and the other from if you want, top to down, from governments to non-state actors. And I'm not going into that tonight, unless people want to ask about it in questions. But I think what's important is not to get an incorrect diagnosis of what the context is. A very popular characteristic diagnosis of these days is to say that what we're seeing is the decline of American power And therefore, the role of a president like Obama is to preside and adjust over decline. Fortunately, Obama has rejected that confusing metaphor and the applied strategy of managing decline. If one looks carefully, one has to realize that we don't know what it means to talk about decline when we talk about the life cycles of nations. With individuals, we clearly know. We have four score years and 10 plus or minus. I can assure you with absolute certainty that I am in decline. But if we look at a country, we have to remember that it took three centuries from Rome to go from its apogee to its final decline. We also should remember the lament of Horace Walpole in the 18th century when looking at Britain's position after it lost its North American colonies, he said, woe to us, we are now reduced to a miserable little island like Sardinia. This was on the eve of Britain's greatest century, fostered by the Industrial Revolution. So we don't know where American power is or where it will be. But speaking in terms of decline seems to be a mistake in contextual analysis. In relative terms, uh, there's a reasonable probability that the Americans will remain more powerful than any single state in the coming decades. I doubt that we're going to see in the next few decades a post-American world. But neither will we live in the American era of the late 20th century. In terms of primacy, the United States will be first but not sole. No one has a crystal ball, but an estimate done by the National Intelligence Council last year may be correct, which is that the unipolar moment is over, but the United States is most likely to remain primus inter pares among the great powers in 2030 because of the multifaceted nature of its power and the legacies of its leadership. So what this suggests is that the United States will be faced with a rise in the power resources of many others, both states and non-state actors. And presidents, Obama and his successors, will face an increasing number of issues 
in which obtaining our preferred outcomes will require power with others as much as power over others. In other words, learning how to create alliances and partnerships and networks may be the secret to being effective as a leader in this new world. So the problem of America's role in the 21st century is not one of a poorly specified decline, but is developing the contextual intelligence to understand that even the largest country cannot achieve the outcomes that it wants without the help of others. And educating the public to both understand and operate successfully in the context of a global information age will be the real task for presidential leadership. And we should judge accomplishment of that task not by whether a president speaks like a transformational leader or whether he acts like a transactional leader, or I say she by the time this comes about, but whether they think clearly about the context and know how do you combine these characteristics in the ways that are appropriate to the 21st century. So those are my lessons from the 20th century of presidents and American foreign policy. And uh, let me end there so that there's time, as I promised, for us to have some questions and conversation. So thank you very much. Thank you.